Hey everyone, you're listening to episode number 36 of the Elysium Project podcast, Bitcoin is Freedom, with Kalea Carrington. I'm your host, Brian Johnson. Established in 2018, our mission at Elysium Project is to leave the planet and its society in better condition than we found it. Please be sure to follow us online at www.elysiumproject.tv where you can find links to all our social media as well as our upcoming online marketplace featuring sustainable and fair trade products from all around the world. Your purchases help support our mission and keep this vision alive and thriving. Today I'm speaking with Kolea Carrington, a technology entrepreneur and executive director of the Canadian Blockchain Consortium. The Canadian Blockchain Consortium is an organization founded to unite Canada's diverse community of blockchain technology business owners, developers, adopters, and those interested in exploring the technology's transformative potential. In this podcast, we discuss some of the many uses of blockchain technology, including Bitcoin, and how it can be used as a technology to foster a freer and more efficient society. Kalea, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah. So I want to start off with Canadian Blockchain Consortium. What is it that got you personally involved into the sphere of blockchain? So I have a tech background. I've been designing uh, combustion systems uh, since about 2009. So I was very heavily involved in tech. And when I started looking at blockchain uh, or Bitcoin, it was because I had a company that was looking at investing in my tech company in Bitcoin. And when I heard it, I was like, is this like money? Are you trying to launder money? I'm really confused about what you're doing right now. (laughs) And I started just like looking into it. And the more I researched, the more I learned and the more people I met in the space, um, it was just like, all right, this is definitely some fascinating uh, money. And then for the Canadian Blockchain Consortium, um, it actually started off as the Alberta Blockchain Consortium. So in my in my career of developing out um, combustion technology, this incredible woman actually commercialized it in the oil and gas space. And she came up with the idea, the concept for the Alberta Blockchain Consortium. She was my mentor. She invested. She got my technology off the ground. And I was forever grateful. She unfortunately passed away um, within about a year of uh, working or two years of working with me. And uh, someone had actually actually asked me in Calgary, like, would you take this on and, you know, keep her legacy going? So uh, I started off at the Alberta Blockchain Consortium. I brought in um, a business partner named Dave Bradley, who's the chief revenue officer now for Bitcoin Well. And we ended up growing it from kind of like a small meetup to uh, the largest not-for-profit industry organization uh, in Canada around blockchain. We do an incredible amount of like education. We teach classes every month. We do a lot of advocacy. We host roundtables engaging with like our government and major players in the industry to help with uh, the regulatory framework that's happening. So we're definitely, uh, we're, we're here to educate you, create a very safe space for you to learn, you know, wade through the nonsense and be able to understand like what is blockchain we have classes on economics of bitcoin and what is bitcoin we have classes on how blockchain impacts a bunch of different various industries and we're always here to answer any questions you may have or send you to like accredited valuable resources Uh, credibility is is key for us 
Uh, so we do not uh, allow any members who even have like ICO tokens, uh, NFTs, anything like that, because if they're offside with the regulators, we don't feel that it's safe to um, encourage the market to participate. So we try to make sure consumer protection is like first and foremost in consumer education and then supporting the companies that are legitimately, you know, working very hard to uh, create businesses and to, you know, support their communities and in this space across Canada. Perfect. So let's break down blockchain a little bit. I know you could do a whole podcast on just blockchain and explaining what it is, but in, in layman's terms, if we can, what is it? What is blockchain? And why is this such a, a prevalent and promising technology right now? Yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So I know a lot of people hear terms like cryptocurrency. They hear terms like Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and many other tokens. You're probably hearing terms like NFTs, non-fungible tokens and things like that. So Blockchain technology came out around 2009 when um, like the developer uh, who called himself uh, Satoshi Nakamoto or the group of developers it could be. So blockchain is actually the underlying technology that allows um, for Bitcoin transactions to uh, be sent and received. So very, very basic. I'll try and be as high level as I can. Mm -hmm. It is a database. And it just consists of a series of time-stamped pieces of data, which they call blocks. And they're managed by a cluster of computers which are decentralized. So decentralized means that there's no central database, there's no central ownership around it. It's managed by um, basically anyone who downloads um, you know, the copy of the blockchain or decides to, to run a node, anyone can see absolutely everything. So it really is end of the day just a database. I know it sounds really exciting and it sounds really magical and everyone's just throwing blockchain at everything, but it's the it's the protocol. And Bitcoin is actually the product that runs on that protocol. Um, the reason why people are so interested in something like blockchain technology right now in that enterprise level where you see businesses and corporations all talking about, you know, trying to to adapt blockchain. Um, so what it does is it actually creates for a level of efficiency. So it's only really good if you have multiple different companies who all need to agree to share data and agree to a same set of data facts. So great opportunities for it, really consistent supply chain where let's give agriculture an example. If um, you're looking at food health and safety and an organization like Walmart wants to be able to cut down their food recall costs. So food, food recalls can cost about you know, $100 million down to $5 million. So they're very, very expensive. Mm. When they go through the process of a food recall, they have to manually try and go through every single person's database to determine, you know, what product was tainted, how much of that product was tainted, where that product gets shipped to. And what they'll do is they'll just recall everything without being able to, to distinguish exactly what happened to what point. Using something like blockchain, they're able to see through the entire port um, supply chain, okay, exactly what was tainted, what was sent, where is it sent to, what were the QR codes. And Walmart did a, uh, an actual um, test case for this, and they were able to cut their food recall times down from six days to 2.2 seconds, saving them millions wow. and millions of dollars. So being able to share data in a very efficient manner where certain amounts of data are kind of critical to share doesn't mean you're sharing everything about your business, doesn't mean you're opening up your financials. It just means that you're inputting certain sets of data 
into a distributed database where other people are going to have access to see it. Now, it doesn't mean every blockchain is also decentralized. Some are, um, you know, permission-based or restricted because, you know, me as a consumer isn't going to be able to get into Walmart's blockchain and be able to see what they're up to. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of um, kind of like flexibility with it. A lot of efficiencies can be gained by using it. A lot of cost saving in terms of like data entry. Uh, another example where blockchain could be used from an enterprise perspective is actually in shipping and logistics. So IBM developed out a platform called Watson. So right now, if you were to take, say, like, you know, a, a cup and you got that cup from China, a lot of people don't realize it could actually go through about 380 different companies from the time it left China to the time it actually touched your hands. So there's a lot of costs that's associated with that shipping. And there's also a lot of fraud, about an average of $6 billion a year in fraud and missing items and things like that. So uh, what happens is every single company has to accept, receive it, put into their own database, move it forward. Using IBM's Watson, the information is put in one single time. And every step of that supply chain, that same set of information is being moved forward. So you know exactly like where you're located, where your package is, and it cuts down a lot of cost. Um, I think they're estimating probably about 25% in either fraud or missing items can be saved uh, by utilizing this technology. And also like just cost for shipping will go down because IBM's only charging like a percentage of the cost of the good versus like, you know, you're basically paying brokerage fees for like a lot of companies to be able to touch your money and move it forward or sorry, touch your product and move it forward. Um, I could keep going on examples in the financial service sector where it doesn't touch cryptocurrency. Uh, what my last example for this one would be uh, just to consider banking. If you want to send money from here somewhere to the Caymans, it can also go through like multiple different banks. Every bank has to receive it, agree that they've received the transaction, move mm -hmm. it forward. And that's where you have a lot of cost. You're paying like $35 or something like that for uh or, or up to $70 for a wire transfer could take two to three days and could also touch through hundreds of banks. If the banks actually agreed to share a particular set of data on a blockchain that is restricted or permission-based, the Cayman's Island Bank could confirm from the Canadian bank that the Canadian bank had the money, they've now received the money, and you could receive it instantly. Um, kind of similar to how uh, Bitcoin's blockchain works. It's like you send it, you get confirmations, you can see it instantaneously, and you don't have all those middlemen. There is a fee, of course, to use the network, but it's definitely a lower fee based on the value that you're sending than, and also more secure, you know exactly where it went to if you put your address in correctly. So those are kind of the ways that it helps in agriculture and industry and in the financial services sector. So it's part of why it's like a growing movement. Uh, people are getting really interested in how to adopt it and doing a lot of R&D for it. Mm hmm. Yeah. On the banking side of things, like you mentioned there, it can be such a tedious process sometimes just to, just to do something as simple as sending money. And I feel like with, with blockchain and cryptocurrency, you really uh, jump through those hurdles and are able to, you know, quickly and easily and efficiently send money transfers back and forth like anywhere around the world. 
Yeah, that's definitely one of the wonderful things about blockchain. And it also gives you uh, kind of like better ownership of your money. Like you go into the bank, you deposit the bank, your money into the bank. And then, you know, if you want to go send your money anywhere, you have to go explain to the bank exactly who mm-hmm. you're sending it to, yeah. why you're sending it. And it's like, is that any of your business? I don't think so. So being able to use something like Bitcoin for transactions to buy, sell, send your family and friends money, it's much cheaper, it's much quicker. And you don't have the rigmarole of, trying to authenticate every single transaction through the bank when it's like, it's not the bank's money. Yeah. I'm curious. We also talked about the use in government. And I know early on with uh, blockchain, one of the topics that was brought up a lot was uh, for voting. And you know, we're in Canada, we've got an election coming up. I don't know how many millions of dollars we spend on creating the ballot boxes, like actually physically going to the ballot boxes but I'm, I'm really curious, is, has there been any testing as far as implementing blockchain technology for voting purposes and allowing people to be able to securely vote, you know, from their computers or their phones? Um, so, yes, there, like the level <laughs> of transparency I personally would love to see in our um, political system for voting. <laughs> That, that'll kind of take you down a bit of a rabbit hole, but let's, yeah. let's just pretend right now we're going to give America as an example when they allowed for mail-in voting, similar to kind of what they're doing this year in Canada. Sure. And there yeah. was a lot of dispute between which president won because miraculously certain you know mail-in votes were showing up quite last minute and there was a lot of dispute around that. So to remove the dispute, if you actually had a blockchain, so say there was like an approved um, and, and a transparent app, this would have to be completely decentralized. Everyone should be able to have access to the data. It should have zero ability for modifications to be made to this data and completely public. So I put that out there first. But if there was an app that was built and designed on blockchain, completely immutable, where a person could go and it would only show, it would only show the vote right? Like it wouldn't give you access to the personal information, their address, their name, and and all of that kind of stuff. But end of the day, it would just show like numbers and polls publicly, like who voted, like this votes for this person, this many votes for this person to remove the dispute. But that is definitely very possible to develop that out. There would just, um, you know, I I highly doubt that governments would actually want to develop that out uh, to create that level of transparency personally. But it, uh, I think, is a lot less of a um, opportunities for disputes, I guess, like using that word, because even just like manually counting, right? Like human error is right. one of the most costly things to absolutely any business, right? Inputting your data, a person like I'm tired, or I'm hungover, or I'm fighting with my boyfriend, whatever going on. If I don't put the data in correctly, right, there's going to be misinformation in the system. And that's a huge component of it. So if they're counting ballots or they're counting mailing cards, whatever it is, there's absolutely an opportunity for like margins of error there. Um, and this would also be able to remove the margin of error. Now, of course, we'd have to account for like people trying to double vote, right? So we'd have to make sure that when you registered, you registered like the one time you got your one vote. Um, I'm assuming for, I don't know if the government actually requires like how much information they require for you to vote if, if they want to know exactly who voted for who, but there's also a way to to show like share certain aspects of information publicly and maintain certain aspects of information on a on a private standpoint. 
They're actually, uh, I think uh, one of the airports in Canada was even looking at doing a blockchain application because right now when Canadians travel through the American border and we do that through Canadian airports, um, the American border gets access to all of the Canadians information instead of just saying, okay, this person's verified to travel. So what they were looking at doing is trying to figure out like a uh, digital identity, like a privacy version. So uh, when you scanned at um, scanned your your passport or whatever, the government would their American government would only receive a certain portion of your information, not 100% of your information to maintain some some levels of privacy. I don't know where they are in the development of that, but I think they'd also probably have to get the American government to agree on, mm-hmm. on uh, data sharing um, at this point. But yeah, a lot, so much innovation is coming up in, in this space. It's hard to keep track sometimes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. With, with the cryptocurrency aspect of blockchain, I think a question that a lot of people have, what we're they're trying to wrap their heads around is what is giving it value versus fiat not that necessarily fiat paper money has a lot of value to it per se but uh it's definitely a question that people ask me in terms of what what is it backed by big we'll take bitcoin for example all right well we are now Dipping into my favorite rabbit hole. <laughs> so let's let's just go for a really quick overview of money. And a lot yes. of people do not actually understand what money is. So right now in Canada, we do call our Canadian currency, like, yeah, it's fiat currency, Canadian dollar. So back in the day, we used to have, uh, during like the time of the Renaissance, like what they considered a gold standard. So during a time where just about every country in the world was actually paying the value of their currency to a certain weight value of gold, you got the British pound, you got your ruple, you had all these different currencies in the world, but there was a standardization. So if you went anywhere in the world, you knew that your money was going to have a particular level of value. The nice thing about gold was there was an assumption of unknown scarcity, right? So what gives money value is the fact that it needs to be scarce. There needs to be a limited amount of it. There needs to be a good demand for it with a limited supply. um, And it needs to be difficult to obtain. So any money that's really, really easy to obtain will slowly uh, decrease in value over time, right? Any money that, um, you know, can be radically increased in amount also dramatically loses its value over time. So when you look at our fiat currency system, once I I believe actually Roosevelt initially uh, started taking America off the gold standard um, back around the Great Depression, it was completely um, abolished by the time Nixon hit office. But by taking it off the gold standard, it was kind of off and on for a bit. But once it was completely gone, now you had your money backed by what they consider GDP or your taxes. Taxes, by the way, were something that was only supposed to be put in place for about seven years during uh, the big world wars, but they've decided they decided to maintain that. So they decided that the value of their money was going to be based on the amount of taxes they were going to be able to get, which is also why your census reports are very, very important, because they want to know how many of them are you out there and how much money are they going to get from you going forward in the future. So they base it by GDP. And they also believed uh, in what they called Keynesian economics. So if you study economics at all, you'll understand this is what we call spend theory. So now it's like, 
They believe that as long as they're stimulating the economy by introducing new money into the economy on an annual basis at about six to seven basis points, that you are going to, you know, spend your money. And this is great. Why we have like low interest rate loans and all these other wonderful things. I mean, this could literally be a 20 hour podcast on its own, but I'm trying to <laughs> highlight the big things here. So in other words, you now have a monetary system where your government has unlimited supply. They can produce as much money as they want. They inflate your money by a, a particular basis point every single year. It is very easy to obtain and it's backed by nothing. So if you want to feel safe because, oh my God, I can pick up a $5 bill and I can hold it in my hand. This is my, this is my money. This, the government says this is my money. The government is telling you how much they think your money is worth right now. But if you go out globally, your money is all over the map. You, you mm -hmm. go to England and your money is worth $2, you know, two pounds over there when it's $5 over here. So there's, it really just depends on where you go. So now we look at something like Bitcoin. So now we have something that's called known scarcity, actual scarcity. There's 21 million Bitcoins that can ever be produced. And I will tell you this solemnly promise, it cannot be manipulated. You cannot create more Bitcoin. From the time the first Genesis block was mined, it was cemented in stone, and there's absolutely no way to modify this whatsoever. So known scarcity. It's the only money in the world that we've ever had from studying all the monetary systems globally that has been this scarce. Now, you cannot inflate it, which is amazing. You cannot double spend it. So based on the immutability of Bitcoin's blockchain, if I say, hey, I'm going to send you one Bitcoin, you have four different miners and you can decide how many confirmations you want. But you have four different computers around the world that have to confirm this wallet address had this much Bitcoin sent this much Bitcoin to that wallet address. They received it once it's confirmed that transaction set in stone. I can't take it back and I can't pretend I have more Bitcoin than I actually do. So that helps with the inflation. This follows the Austrian economics school of thought. It's also very difficult to obtain. So very similar to gold. With gold, you had to mine for it. You had to do geographic studies. You had to use a lot of energy and power and equipment and natural resources to get your hands on it and then process it so it was something that was usable. Similar to Bitcoin, you have millions of computers for solving functional equations, giving a reward in Bitcoin, and there's time, money, effort, labor, energy expenditure, parts, materials, all of that combined to be able to manage this process, right? So difficult to obtain, limited amount, actual scarcity, and then you have supply and demand, right? So why is Bitcoin actually increasing in value? I've seen dramatic value increase, especially since COVID. Why? I think people are starting to wake up to the fact that their government is printing money like it's going out of freaking style. Our government in Canada alone has actually increased our money in circulation by $380 billion since COVID started. Wow. And, you know, Trudeau's just saying, I'm not really concerned about monetary policy. The books are somehow going to magically balance themselves. And people are really excited getting their $1,800 a month, not realizing, by the way, that's your tax dollars. And that's your children's 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 tax dollars that are going to go pay back that $1,800 that you just took mm -hmm. because they believe just hyperinflation. They, it, it's absolutely fascinating the level of monetary abuses that we're seeing globally. A couple of years ago, China increased its money in supply by 2%, which was trillions of dollars, I might add. Nobody even noticed, but Canada borrows money off of China. So your money is not actually worth anything. There's nothing backed by it. It's not being backed by gold. It's not being backed by diamonds, which also have no intrinsic value. It's not being backed by um, land. 
anything to do with that. It's literally backed on how many taxpayers are gonna be paying what amount of tax on an annual basis based on population. So I personally only want Bitcoin as in terms of my savings. So let's just think in terms of inflation. If your money is being inflated, the entire money supply is being inflated by six to 7% per year, that actually means that your spend power, your ability to get the same amount of goods for that amount of money decreases on an annual basis. So what cost you $100 this year is going to cost you $107 next year. It's actually theft. If you're saving money in a fiat currency system, that means you have to be making at least 15% on your money to be gaining 7% on it per year. If not, you're actually losing money by having an RSP, an RESP, a GIC, saving an actual physical cash. Any of those methodologies actually lose you money. Where with Bitcoin, it has proven historically as one of the top performing assets in the world and the soundest money we've ever actually seen to increase in value by almost 200% per year. So even when you hear in the news, oh, it's crashed again, it started off as absolutely no value. It is completely valued by the people who are supporting the network, who have, who believe there is value based on the monetary principles that Bitcoin operates from. Scarcity, supply and demand ratios, the fact that it's not inflatable, the fact that it takes a lot of energy to produce it. To me, that is sound money versus, well, your government's going to continue to produce money as much as they want. Like if you think about it right now in Canada, our, de our debt to GDP ratio is actually worse in France, Greece. We are one of the top worst in the G7. We have, I think what Pierre Provari said that we are 383% debt to GDP ratio, which means with the GDP we currently have, we owe... 383% more than we could come up with with our current GDP rate. Oh. We're in that much debt in this country because we've produced that much invisible money that doesn't have anything that backs it by. Well, Bitcoin has maintained its amount of Bitcoins in supply and increased in value hundreds of percents since COVID started because now high net worth people are starting to realize they no longer have safe havens to be able to store their money to increase in value. So originally it was assets you could put your money into because a lot of times when money is inflated, it hits the commodities market first. You're seeing housing prices skyrocket right now, but has the value of that home increased? No, the money supply has increased. It costs you more to get cedar. Why? Because the money supply has increased. It costs you more to get steel. You're gonna start seeing it at like your, your gas. You're gonna start seeing it all over the place, but people aren't realizing the more money you have, and you have a limited amount of goods and an unlimited supply of money, the goods are going to cost more to equate to the amount of supply of money that you're going to have out there. It's a supply and demand ratio. We have a lot of money out here right now that has nothing to back it by and a limited amount of goods. You're going to start paying a lot more. This is what happened with Venezuela. Like we could point out governments all over the world where we've watched the monetary systems collapse. Reason mm -hmm. being that the governments go, oh, we need more of this. Let's print out more money and go buy it. And eventually it does catch up. And then the value of the currency gets decreased. In Venezuela right now, if you get a paycheck, you need to cash it out and buy everything you can that day because your money will be worth just a little bit less the next day. And that's why Venezuelans can't even scrape themselves out of poverty. They can't save their money. They can't do anything with it because it's a completely devalued currency. In Zimbabwe, you had billionaires that couldn't buy a loaf of bread because their money was that worthless. And now our wonderful liberal Canadian government has decided to send us down the exact same rabbit hole as all these other countries by dramatically increasing the money supply, nothing actually backed by it, no intrinsic value, and no desire to stop printing out money. 
Mm-hmm. It's very interesting if you think how the Bank of Canada has issued out just as much money as the government of Canada has borrowed mm-hmm. on short-term variable interest rate loans. Warren Buffett used to say, if you wanted a government bond, you used to get 15.9% interest rate annually back on those bonds. Now it's negative 094 So even your government bonds are worth less. And what they're doing is they're going out to high net worth people saying, we need to borrow this money from you. They're like, okay, I'll give it to you, but for a short term. And they're paying back those loans almost double or triple what they took from them. So it's like, why exactly are these people getting back double to triple their money on a short term loan? Like there's just a lot of corruption that happens in our fiat currency system. And this is globally. Yeah, I think that people. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's that's great. I think that people are really starting to wake up to the um, fact that money is almost a fraudulent system of the hyperinflation. How it, and at some point, it has to unfortunately collapse. And you know, we all live in this this sort of headspace where we think, oh, it can't happen to us. It can't happen in this part of the world. But like you've touched on, monetary systems around the world have have always collapsed when they're based on the centralized banking the way they are now. We have never seen a monetary system outside of the gold standard that has ever been able to maintain any level of value. Um, one of my favorite books, if anyone's interested, um, I know the author, his name is Seyfedina Moose. He is probably one of like my favorite Austrian economist of our time. He wrote the Bitcoin standard. Um, it's definitely what started diving me down uh, the rabbit hole uh, to understand Austrian economics and Bitcoin. If you want to understand more on Austrian economics, I love any book by Murray M. Rothbard. He's kind of considered kind of like the father of Austrian economics, brilliant philosopher, great ideas on that. The more you understand economics, the more you understand how your money works and where actual value comes from. Like, if you think about it, you go back um, in in the Aztecs, they used to believe that feathers had value. So very rare birds, being able to receive a feather off a very rare bird had value for barter and trade, right? So it's all about what value do I have and what could I give you, what could you give me for the value I'm trying to exchange, right? So you want barter and trade. So people wanted scarce items because the more rare the item, the more valuable the item, the more goods they could get for that item. When you devalue an item astronomically, it's going to take so much more of that item to be able to, you know, get what you want to need. Like, would you go to the store with a thousand bananas trying to change it for a cow? (laughs) No, because you're assuming that person that has the cow actually wants a thousand bananas. And then do you need the whole cow or do you just want some milk? Right. So having a medium of exchange, uh, a a form of monetary exchange is very, very valuable. But you need that form of monetary exchange to make more sense than you bringing a thousand bananas and trying to buy a cow with it. Right. There has to be a value exchange for that. And our fiat currency system is diminishing that consistently. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's actually very, very scary. And I've seen a lot of people actually move out of the country or completely remove all of their uh, cash assets and holdings right into Bitcoin, because it's actually considered more of a safe haven asset right now than storing anything in the fiat currency system, just out of the global uncertainty. And that's another reason why it's gone up in value. So one thing about Bitcoin, you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. A lot of people think, oh, it's $60,000 right now. I can't afford a whole Bitcoin. How do I get my hands on it? What Satoshi or the group of developers who who came up with this in their brilliance was like, you don't have to buy a whole one. You can buy a fraction. It goes back eight decimal points. So you can have like 0.00001 of a Bitcoin. Like right now they're saying to even own 0.1 of a Bitcoin will be considered generational wealth 
at some point in the future. I, I don't have a magic ball. I can't give you price predictions. I, I don't really pay attention or care about the price of Bitcoin as it's back to fiat currency, because in my opinion, a Bitcoin is going to be a Bitcoin and it's going to have a lot more value than whatever your dollar is today. But um, when you at least have like even like a little fraction of it, right? And you start saving towards that instead of a GIC, even if it's going to be volatile five years down the road, what you purchase is going to be worth more than what you bought at today. And that's what you want your money to do, at least be stable. If you think of the time of the Renaissance, when we're on the gold standard, you had some of the most incredible families, like which uh, uh, in the Florentine families, it was the, the Medici families, they're one of the ancient banking families. And uh, quantitative easing actually came out of uh, Florence and, and the banking standard, if you guys are ever interested in learning about that. But when they had stability in their money, you had all of these incredible artists and philosophers in this beautiful time of, of thought and reflection. And it was because people weren't scared. They didn't have to go and spend their money immediately because they knew their money was going to have value. They knew that in five to 10 years from now, their money would still have value, potentially increase in value, but at least stay the same. If you don't have that and you lived in and you live in a spend theory environment, it's like, okay, I better go out and buy this today because we don't have any time preference. We're like, go buy it. Our, um, immediate gratification is what we have because in some level we do know our money is just not going to be worth mm. the same amount the next year. Right. So without having that, it's like, you don't have any real assurance for the future. How do you even save for your future? Because you save a hundred thousand dollars now 10 years from now, that's probably going to be worth the equivalency of $50,000, right? Based on, on, on rates of inflation, you, you can't even save for your future in a fiat currency system. What would you say is the easiest way for someone to dip their toes in cryptocurrency? If they're looking to get in to buy a little bit of a Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency, what do you recommend for people? Well, um, so one of the things I would highly, highly encourage when people are looking into cryptocurrency, please stop looking into cryptocurrency. <laughs> so all other forms of crypto from Ethereum to Monero to Cardano to Pancake, I don't care what you want to call it. If it's not Bitcoin, it's not money, right? Mm. A cryptocurrency based off a Keynesian economic system is literally the, uh, the what you call a shit coin. Okay. <laughs> you are not going to make money long-term with these. This is not a get rich quick scheme. This is literally some of the worst investments to me you can make in your life. And I know a lot of people go, Oh, I made a bunch of money on this. It's like, I'm sorry, in a bull market, you can throw, you know, like shit at the broadside of a barn and make some money, but in a bear market, you've already lost it all. So Bitcoin is sound money. It's the soundest money the world has ever seen. There really, there is only one Bitcoin. Bitcoin Satoshi's vision is not Bitcoin. Bitcoin Cash is not Bitcoin. I don't care what Roger Ver says, right? Like all of these other ones, Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin God. If it's not Bitcoin BTC, it's not money in this system. So don't get wrecked. Buy your Bitcoin and hold. If you want to get into it, research. Make sure you feel comfortable with your investment. Get books like the Bitcoin Standard. Start, you know, following some really great maximalists on Twitter. Start understanding economics. Start reading books by Murray M. Rothbard. Start trying to under, like the technology behind it. If you want to understand what you're investing in, really take that time and effort to do it. There's amazing platforms in Canada. You can go to Bitcoin Well. Uh, they have ATMs all across the country. You can purchase it right through their ATMs. You have Bull Bitcoin, which is a non-custodial brokerage so they don't take custody they don't hold it on exchanges that you can't you know lose your assets you know that way because exchanges are very like you know there's some shady stuff goes on there sometimes 
um, and you send them the money and then they immediately tell you what what Bitcoin wallet address, because the second you want to convert into Bitcoin, they have to send it out. They will not like retain it and they'll only retain your money for 180 days. If you don't buy Bitcoin within that time, it goes back to your account. So there's safe, verified companies and Bitcoin well is also public. They're one of the first uh, Bitcoin. No, actually, they are the first in the world Bitcoin ATM company to go public. So you have a lot of accreditation behind that organization as well. I know the guys that uh, that work there and uh, helped take it public and founded it. Great organization. Um, but again, research, look into it. Please don't get too bottled by the noise. Crypto is, there's a lot of scams in this space. NFTs are crap. You, nobody needs an NFT. No, no company needs a token, realistically. Like you want sound money. Um, I know that might not be the most popular opinion. And a lot of people are just like, oh no, but my Cardano is worth so much. <laughs> it's like, but again, it follows the, it follows the exact same economic principles as the fiat currency that is currently devaluing your own money. So when you have a central authority in control of being able to determine what the supply of the money is, right, when they can manipulate it, when they can issue out unlimited amounts, when there's no real economic principles backed by it, it's not, it's not sound money. It's not going to increase in value the way you're assuming long-term. It's not like an investment strategy for you. It's like, if you can get rich quick on it and you want to take that high level of risk, I mean, that's, that's for you to individually decide. But if you're looking to get in and have it, it is a long-term investment. Like right. you don't want to look at this like, oh, I'm going to go to the moon and make all this money immediately. It's like, you're planning this as your retirement. And for people like me who do that, it's because the level of, you know, years of research and time dedicated to understanding I feel safe with this investment. So if you don't feel safe with it, don't touch it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious though, with, in regards to Bitcoin itself being used as a money versus like as a transactional money versus just an investment. Um, I'm not totally up to date on the technology, but as far as I know, at least from what I what I know in the past with Bitcoin as a transactional currency, does it not take, for example, if you went to go to a coffee shop and buy a coffee, you would more or less have to be waiting up to 10 or 15 minutes for that transaction to be approved? Or has that, has that changed? Okay. So in terms of a transactional based currency versus like a, what people call like a store of value, um, let's just give an example. When's the last time that you took a piece of gold and, and tried to break it off and take it to a store and purchase something with it. People didn't really do that. They wanted a medium of exchange, right? So where Bitcoin would make best sense is being considered like a global reserve currency. So if our governments decided that we, they want something sound to base their money on, so they couldn't hyperinflate it to the moon and back, right? And it was based on this this many Canadian dollars is the equivalent of this much Bitcoin, and this is how much they have, and they can prove that they have in their reserves, it would stabilize the value of the Canadian dollar in a sense, like once Bitcoin stabilizes, I get that, right? But it would at least give you a pairing. Um, right now, there's a lot of things like Lightning Network uh, that have creating better scalability so that you could purchase with your Bitcoin. Um, you know, the second you've sent it, right, and you have a single confirmation, um, it's irreplaceable. Like you can't reverse the transactions. Um, so there are people who are purchasing in Bitcoin, 
right? You can do it on your hot wallet. A lot of people, like nobody has the skill right now to be able to go, oh, I don't want to do that reverse refund, that kind of thing. It's, it's not as easy. Um, it's make, make more sense for like longer term purchases. Like if you're buying something online and, you know, they confirm it within like an hour and they send it to you the next day. Uh, so it is scaling up to be more transactional based. Um, as of right now, uh, it's not as transactional based. So it's it's more something that you you buy and hold. And a lot of a lot of Bitcoiners, they don't spend their Bitcoin because they also know long term it's going to be worth more to like a few years from now than it is today. Like personally for me, I wouldn't buy a cup of coffee with my Bitcoin. Because then you kind of have this like, uh, I can't, I don't know, I can't remember the exact term for it. But if you think of it, it's like, okay, what did I buy last year when Bitcoin was like, say, $13,000? If I would have bought like a Bitcoin worth of something or 13 grand worth of something, and today it's worth $60,000, it's like, you kind of kicking myself over the 40 grand in loss I just experienced, like I would have felt like I experienced. So I hold and hold and hold and hold and hold because I believe that long term, it's worth more than the instant gratification of me getting that particular coffee or that item, that purse, that belt, whatever it is. So do you see Bitcoin being a monetary or, or a unit of exchange that eventually down the road people will be using on a day-to-day transactional basis? Or do you think that there will be other cryptocurrencies or coins that are be- going to be used for that? And do you see that happening soon? Or is that still... Are we still years away from that sort of thing? So if we think about it in El Salvador, they're like the first one of the first countries in the world to say we accept this as a legal legal form of tender, right? So now every store, every business, every person can transact and own and, and like and, and purchase in it and stuff like that, which which is fantastic. Now, um, I'm not 100% up to date on it, but it depends on whether or not they peg their El Salvador dollar to the value of Bitcoin, right? Because there's the financial infrastructure there for you to continue to use your fiat currency. The goal with your fiat currency is for it to stop being so hyperinflated that it loses its value. Um, eventually, I do believe that this would become a global reserve currency. The more the more people start transacting in it and using it, and the more governments start to see that they're you know their money globally like. Reserve currencies like the American dollar are starting to lose, you know, any form of stable value. That is probably what's going to encourage more governments to pick it up. Um, I do believe it can be transaction based. I just don't feel that there needs to be a cryptocurrency that's like, you know, the silver to Bitcoin's gold, so to speak. Um, Silver at one point was a medium of exchange versus your gold. It's like this much silver equaled this much gold that sits in this bank vault over here. So it was like an easier method to to transact with. Uh, We got paper notes after that, uh, which we've still been transacting with today. Um, But again, when it was backed by the amount of gold that was held in reserve, people could at any time take that paper note that worked as an IOU and convert it into the value of the gold that it said it was worth. That's how I would see, you know, Bitcoin being used more longer term. Um, but I don't really see it being heavily, heavily transactional in the fa- in the next five years. There, I think there needs to be more um, development on top of Bitcoin Core to be able to allow for that speed of transaction and confirmation for bis- before businesses feel really comfortable being able to accept it. Mm-hmm. Last question I have for you. At Elysium Project, one of our visions and mission statements is to leave the planet and its society in better condition than we found it 
which is where our interest in blockchain and cryptocurrency comes from, because we believe that it is a technology that can improve the quality of life on Earth. What do you feel in terms of the future and looking forward with cryptocurrency? How do you see it helping humanity the most? Um, honestly, I feel like in terms of helping humanity the most, I think that Bitcoin being, again, the soundest money the world has ever seen is going to be a really incredible way for individuals who you know, may not have a lot of means, even if they can buy a little bit of it to be able to generate, um, you know, long-term financial stability for them if they can stack their sats and keep it going. Um, I think that blockchain technology, uh, I think we have incredible ways to help in the fight for freedom of basic human rights. Um, again, using Bitcoin, I actually just did a blog on this one, how it supports basic human rights and freedoms, because there are countries in the world right now who control you based on your money. In China, if you Google the wrong thing, they impact you. If you say the wrong thing, they impact you and that social credit score. And when they're able to cut off your money system, when they're able to cut off your bank accounts, et cetera, and you can't supply for your, for your children and your family because you have different political views, that is absolutely an abolishment of human rights. And Bitcoin does solve this because the government has absolutely zero way of controlling your Bitcoin. Uh, you have other countries in the world right now, like uh, you know, people in Nigeria that are fighting against you know, some of the injustices that they're seeing and their bank accounts are being cut off and they're being funded through Bitcoin to be able to buy things like gas masks, to be able to help with the pepper spray that they're getting and be able to still feed their families. If you think uh, in Russia right now, uh, Putin is very, very powerful and his one political opponent is being funded in Bitcoin because it's the only way that he can fund his his political rally to be able to remove Putin um, and you know stop being so communist because Putin controls the entire monetary monetary system, right? So when you're controlled by your by the money, by your governments, that is an abolishment of your human rights. Bitcoin fixes this. Um, and also, as I've said, for things like blockchain to be able to give people the freedom to go, like I, I have, you know, rights to my land, to be able to get those land titles through technology like that, um, to be able to help with uh, remittance payments, sending money to your families all over the world. I mean, there's just so many ways that that Bitcoin does help. But for me, like, you should have the freedom to choose. You should have your freedom of speech. You should have the freedom of your money. And in places with low infrastructure for uh, money as well, if you have a hard time getting a bank account, anyone can get a Bitcoin wallet, right? So. 100%, yeah, that actually gave me chills <laughs> when you were saying that the idea of putting the power back into the people and out away from the government, back into the hands of the, the people as it should be. Bitcoin is freedom. And it is a technology and a, and a money that I believe will be able to create true freedom for anybody on the planet. Self-sovereignty, take your power back, be able to stack your sats and, you know, the government won't have as much control over you. Your spend, your dollar, where you put your dollar is literally a vote for where you're putting your Vote, vote with your time. money. I always yeah, like vote with your money. Have time preference. Have value long term, 
right? Like I want to leave something for my children. I want to make sure I know that they're going to be okay. And I know they won't be okay in a fiat currency system, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I know people are suffering right now under huge oppression in communist dictatorships, which Canada is not really getting far away from at this point, you know, based on the fact that your government controls your money. Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen next if you don't have a vaccine passport? Now you can't even shop. Now what, what you don't get your vaccine with, they cut off your bank account. You can't like that level of government oppression is an abolishment to human rights. Yeah, absolutely. But they do it because they control your money. They control mm-hmm. the fact that you could even have a business for two years. Were you allowed to be open? That is not something a government should be able to control your livelihood and your ability to feed your family. Mm-hmm. But don't worry, they're handing out $1,800 a month that your children's children's children get to pay back. <laughs> yeah. And if people want to find out more about what you're doing with the Canadian Blockchain Consortium, where can they find you? Uh, CanadaBlockchain.ca is our website. You're absolutely welcome to find us there. And um, if you want to come attend some of our classes, everything we do is free. And I'll also say that we are an organization of 35 volunteers. Nobody makes any money. Nobody gets a paycheck out of this. We all just dedicate our time to helping people understand what this is, what this isn't. I know like for me, I'm more of, I am a maximalist, like that's pretty evident. Um, So I will be very clear on like, don't invest in bad projects. Um, But there's a lot of people who are in all kinds of different spaces that also are just there and want to help you understand and navigate the legal ramifications, the technology, um, all kinds of things. Very friendly group. All right. Well, once again, thank you very much for joining us today, Kalea. I think we really touched on a lot of what I wanted to talk about in terms of blockchain and Bitcoin and how this technology can benefit society. So we really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me and thank you for enjoying my long rants. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was perfect. I think the listeners are going to enjoy it. Awesome. Well, thank you. Much love, everyone. And thank you for listening today. Remember to visit us online at www.elysiumproject.tv where you can find links to all our social media as well as our soon-to-come online marketplace featuring sustainable and fair trade products from all around the world. Your purchases help support our mission and keep this vision alive and thriving. Thanks again and we'll see you next time.